Hello, everybody. Um, I would like to welcome you to the second in a series of self-service conversations, which has been held in the Lamp Pub tonight. Self-service is an organization that is coming out of a group of artists that are based in Birmingham and elsewhere, not just Birmingham. And um, I'm here tonight uh, to uh, introduce Miles Thurlow and Carmen Cabreras Uzez. <laughs> Miles Thurlow is my guest in, such, in the sense that I've invited him here tonight and um, he's an artist based in Gateshead he's co-director of Workplace Gallery with Paul Moss um, he has been in a number of recent uh, exhibitions including Legacies of Dissolution at Colony in Birmingham Formal Dining at Hales Gallery London Blue Star Red Wedge in, at Glasgow International, and You Shall Know Our Velocity at the Baltic Centre for Contemporary Art. His guest is Carmen Cabrera-Suzez, um, who is a graduate um, on, of the MA in Curating at Goldsmiths College. Um, she's curated a number of exhibitions, including The Taming Power of the Small in Mexico City, Stages and Transfers, also at Mexico City in 2005, and more recently, um, an audio guide for Sir John Soane's Museum in London, 2006. Um, I'm going to let Miles maybe talk a little bit more about his guest or and let them basically start their conversation. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, for, first of all, I'd just like to really thank you all for inviting me here or having this event because I think it's a really great thing to happen and um, I'm sure you do it all the time so it's totally normal but for me it's, this is my first time doing this kind of thing um, and how great to come and meet a whole new bunch of artists and also I'd like to thank um, Mona and Paul for uh, the show um, which was a lovely surprise out of the blue to be invited to do it um, and just really to thank you for your, your work doing, doing Colony because I know that it can be really, really hard work running a gallery and it's a kind of thankless task a lot of the time. So thank you very much and to all, all the rest of you who do similar things as well. But, um, so I should... Uh, and thank you, Carmen, for coming up because I met Carmen about a year and a bit ago... Um, at Workplace Gallery when the MA curating came up to do a visit to Newcastle and Gateshead and uh, Lisa Leferve who was teaching on the, on the curating course invited Paul Moss and I to do a talk um, and she, she uh, basically insisted that we talk about our own practice which is something that we weren't really used to at all because we spend an awful lot of time talking about other people's work and trying to push other people's work out there so I did that and then I met Carmen at the end and then we met down in uh, London at Hales and just began a dialogue about art really and, and you know it's been a, a it's, it's nice when things like that happen so thank you for coming <laughs> well I, I will continue with the thanking yeah. thing <laughs> about uh, thank to you Miles for inviting me I'm really so I got a, this is, it's actually just an avoidance tactic so I don't have to talk yeah, about yeah. it you, you should show your enthusiasm and thanks Mona for your patience and all the email exchange things and yeah I'm very pleased to be here and to see to that you are all attending 
Thank you very much. <laughs> so, so, well, what are we maybe, do? What are we yeah, talk about? maybe, maybe we could be a little bit anecdotic and start talking about uh, maybe about the piece that inspired the whole oh, okay. conversation and so, exchange right, in got, your. I've got my. I basically managed to get hold of my PDF from the gallery, which is not particularly organised. Can this be done as a slide? Can it be made into a slideshow, or is this? I'm not used to windows, but is this, uh, or is this it? Shall I just leave it like that? Can everybody see? Yeah, well, as Miles uh, commented, we, we were in this visit to his gallery and he and Paul presented his work and I was particularly intrigued about the story behind this piece because it seemed to be like an accidental piece. I mean, it was yeah. not like the core of the work, but it was like the result, mm -hmm. which in a way derived another yeah it was a it was a product of a process and the the kind of the thing that you see was completely i don't know it wasn't intended at all um basically i should probably i should describe this this is a piece called drawing erased and removed and it was done while i was on my my ma at newcastle university in 98 to 2000 and it was basically a uh, four foot um wide sheet of MDF, 13mm or 12mm MDF um, that I had uh, glued um, a really nice, you know you get that, those really nice rolls of paper thick long rolls and I just so I glued paper to it and I'd soaked it in black ink and then um, started drawing on it with a very um, tight linear uh, graphite it's basically a, a line drawing that just continued over the whole sheet Um, until you ended up with a with a monochrome graphite drawing, um, which basically looks like steel. I mean, you you know it's, the surface you get off graphite is very reflective, especially when you when you really go for it. Um, so I was quite seduced by that whole thing. I, I, I thought it was a very very beautiful object, and um, then I started erasing it because I I felt a little bit suspicious by the fact that I was seduced by this beautiful. Object. So I, I got some Stadler erasers. Oh, it's a bit of an advert there, isn't it? But I got some Stadler erasers <laughs> and started rubbing it out, which is an incredibly hard thing to do on graphite because it's incredibly slippery. It, it's used in industry as a kind of lubricant, basically. So you can't get any friction going, or it's very hard to get friction going. So you have to keep on going until it really, really heats up. 
and then every now and again it catches and that you, you get a good smear of it off and it you, you kind of catch the grain of the paper and pull the graphite off and what that was doing was revealing the, the matte black ink behind it so it, it, there was this really interesting process of kind of black on black with black behind and a, and a kind of um, reflective graphite on top so I just kind of carried on like this and again became very seduced by the, the aesthetics of, of what was going on it was a very beautiful kind of image really um, and then again I became very suspicious about the fact that I was seduced by what it looked like because at that time I think I was reading some I was, I was like reading Hal Foster and Rosalind Krauss and all that kind of stuff and it was all you know I was grappling with the fact that I was trying to shift from um, well shift into a much more of a theoretical debate with with process and sculpture and things like that so I ended up erasing it completely um, and then I kind of felt like, well, that's no good, is it? And then redrew it, and then re-erased it, and redrew it, and re-erased it over a period of about two years. And then, and then basically, what was happening, I, I started noticing that the, the droppings, the kind of droppings of the rubber. You know, if you rub something out, you get like rubber, rubber poo. Um, was was sliding down the the sheet of MDF and um, just staying at the base. Um, and as I was working on it, the, the graphite was getting on my hands and I was kind of um, touching the wall, you know, just to support my body weight. And over, over a period of a, you know, I was working on and off on it over a period of a year, a year or two years. Um, and then at, there was one particular day that I went in and just decided to remove the whole thing. So I took the drawing away completely and was left with um, a place, really, which was which was, it had kind of come out of this process. So you, what you see now on here is the marks from my hands above the drawing and where the graphite has slid down the drawing and hit the floor. So it's kind of basically defining a place where something happened. So that was... The mm. <laughs> and you kept the leftovers over these two years' period? Yeah, I just I just kept working on it, and I basically I had it in I had this sheet lent up in the corner of my studio because it was a two year course. I just kept it there over the two years and worked on and off, you know, intermittently whilst I was doing other things. But I kept coming back to it because there was something about the process mm. of doing it, of, of affirmation and negation, and this kind of. I think there's something to do with um, undermining one's own work which is quite I find quite interesting so yeah but I, I, I cannot help but think about Penelope and some expectations of uh, revelation from the work this this action of being suspecting of the work because it seduces you and then undoing it can you explain what you mean Penelope, Penelope, Penelope. Who, who was waiting and And you have to explain it. <laughs> and knitting and undoing her knitting while waiting, because if she ended up her work, it was going to meet that the that's the thing that she was expecting was never going to come back. Okay. Does everyone does everyone know this story? I don't. I, I actually don't know it. Could you maybe you can run <laughs> from the beginning? <laughs> I think um, it rings a bell. 
Um, Penelope, who was waiting for Homer. Okay. It's in the Odyssey, so. Homer, yeah. 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 When he went away to work, and she was waiting for him, and her kind of statement was to be knitting yeah. a piece of fabric, but each night she undo her knitting, which was a symbol of her yeah. waiting and the expectation of some return. And in a way, I, I think about that because of this relation with seduction and yeah, so and skepticism about seduction and disappointment, maybe it seems. I think that's quite yeah. I think that there was definitely a lot of time filling going on <laughs> in there as well, and I, I quite like the idea of taking apart what you've done. And that that can become meaningful is quite key, I think. So I, th I don't know. There's something to do with that. That that the actual act of doing something can mean something, even though it doesn't particularly look like anything. I think is for me is quite a, an important thing. Mm. And we were also talking at some point about tautology and redundance and this thing about going over and over the same thing that is done and undone well not simultaneously but the process includes the disappearance of the thing and the reconstruction and yeah. which I think is quite a constant in your work maybe we could see another yeah, piece of that Mm. Um, yeah, well, the tautology I thought was an interesting sort of point. Um, the idea of yeah, let me just I'll move on because it's kind of this is the the next stage of that piece. Okay, so the idea of tautol a tautology is something I, I I'll probably get this completely wrong. But it's something that is true, but it becomes kind of meaningless because it's always affirming itself. Is that right? Is it, are there any philosophers in the, in the room that can help me on this one? But there's, it's like if you say, it's like when something is always the case, it doesn't kind of mean anything anymore, right? So there's, but that could be meaningful. Yeah. Because it's meaningless. I think that there's something interesting about that and in, our, in, into this process of transformation to what's obvious. Yeah, I think that if you continue down a path where you're um, where you're kind of you're basically emptying out meaning, then there's something meaningful about that because. I think that art can... One of the things that I don't tend to like in art, or art in inverted commas, is when it attempts to be meaningful, right? And it attempts to take a position position where it is informing me or it is kind of taking an ethical position or a moral position or, or it has... 
some kind some of, kind of a, doctrine. Yeah, it's, it's, le- it's almost taking mm. a, an authoritarian position mm. where I feel that I'm being... Um, some, I, you know, I don't know. There's something about that position which I'm not so sure about, and I actually think that it can be more meaningful to to make work that sits outside of the normal conventions of the world and actually is empty of any meaning because it kind of reflects back what's going on in the world. Does that, mm. does that make sense? <laughs> I mean, it, it's probably... Yeah. So, everyone's <laughs> thinking, oh, I need to see more work. <laughs> they don't know what I'm on about. <laughs> But uh, just going back to this piece, after this uh, four-year period, two-year two period, you decided to stop it. And yeah. wh- what what was the motivation? I think I just became exhaustion. so sick of going around in circles with this thing that I kept erasing and redoing and erasing and redoing. It just felt like an end game. And... Um, with no that didn't really it didn't really um, point to anything outside of itself and it was a way of breaking it and I think that that sometimes you just need to you know that almost became its own convention conventional Mm. way of behaving so to step outside of that again to undermine that process the important thing to do was just to kind of take the thing away, and then, and then you're left with something completely other, um, which I then left for a while, and then removed that, and that was swept up into into this piece here, which is basically a drawing. It was kind of um, swept up, and then uh, put in a freezer bag, and then after a while, I sort of realised that this this kind of sculptural object, which was a bag of uh, rubber and graphite was the drawing. So that the interesting thing for me was to, to think about how um, something like drawing could be stretched. You know, the, the process of drawing or the, the, the subject of drawing is a very traditional art kind of subject. So. And I think some kind of animistic thing as well in this issue of keeping and preserving and some kind of monument to that to your period yeah it's like a kind of memorial in a way Um, and yeah it's quite morbid I think it's like kind of a dead an act that has passed and then you're left with this kind of ash almost Um, it's a bit like a you know, an urn of somebody who's, you know, why do we keep urns with ashes in them? It's quite odd behaviour. Um, but there's the idea of something that is infused with the process or, or, the, or time uh, and somehow that, it, because it's almost like there, there could be an equation for it, right? It's like the act um, over the time times the work done equals something that has a almost like an infused presence of something and I'm very I, I find that very interesting it's like a relic 
I mean, the Turin Shroud's an interesting thing, isn't it? You know, it's just a piece of cloth. Whatever your, whether you believe it, whether you believe in that system of, you know, if you, whether you whether you're Christian or not, it's still a piece of cloth. And I kind of think that's quite an interesting thing. So, in a way, this is a bit like that. It's like you do something over time, and it it gets infused with. Yeah, it seems that it's some kind of economy of the thing that has a possibility to keep all this amount of time and energy and questions into one single thing that yeah. at the same time is not revealing all that unless you do the whole... Absolutely. So you, you go through the whole story fit. And that's another thing that I find very interesting is actually not disclosing the, the, the whole information. So you're left with something that's quite... It's, it's just a thing, right? And you have to... Um, the, the viewer has to work to start to unpick the meaning behind it. And it's kind of okay that you don't get it as well. It's not like I want to sort of... I don't particularly care if people get it or not. It's just that I find it... I've always found it more interesting looking at art that I've had to um, ask questions about. And as I ask questions about it, and things are revealed to me in, in the process or the, the, the concept of the piece, you know, as, as things become clearer, the work kind of becomes more important to me. I mean, I, I was, I remember seeing um, Thomas Demand's work for the first time and sort of just seeing this photograph of a place and thinking, that's a nice photograph in a kind of very German style and then realising that he constructed it out of card and mm -hmm. as an installation and then photographed it and then destroyed the installation. And that was kind of one wave of revelation about this, these beautiful works. And then sort of, I don't know, a year later, I, didn't, I hadn't read particularly about it, I sort of realised that they were all um, photographs from, uh, from very historically significant moments. So they were like a, a, a room that was a fairly normal room, was, a, was Hitler's bunker where he committed suicide. And it's like none of this was revealed at the time of looking at the work. Yeah, you kind of as you as you sort of inquire further, you start to see um, this thing, you, this this piece of well, this image starts to have much more resonance, really. And I, I, that, I'm very interested in that dynamic. Yeah, um, yeah, I think it's like. Uh, double position towards what's symbolic and what's literal that I also perceived it in your work comes over and over what was more related with the action and the actual uh, expenditure of time and energy and and what it in a way turns to be like a metaphor or something that operates in a more poetic way so maybe we could see yeah, more yeah. works
maybe I should talk about this piece a bit. This is um, this piece is called Sorry, 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 and it's uh, basically four um, IKEA filing cabinets. They're called Stur cabinets that I bought, and then um, these are. Basically, I kind of went shopping for art, and uh, I think they're like 30 quid each or something at the time. So it was quite expensive because they didn't have any, didn't have any money at the time. And then it's like I really was attracted to this object because it looked like a Donald Judd sculpture. You know, the shelf piece that goes up. Does everyone know that kind of his his works that go up the wall like shelves? And it really reminded me of that. And um, there, there's something really fascinating about the idea of minimalism, this kind of ideologically kind of weighty movement that, that's been um, subsumed into design, into lifestyle, and then kind of presented in, in, a, in IKEA as some kind of thing that you buy, and then you're, it's almost like you're buying into an ethical viewpoint because. You go to IKEA, you, you kind of get a real sense of everything's recyclable. It's you know it's made from replenishable forests, all that kind of thing. So there's 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 that there's something really interesting about that as a kind of raw material that that you're then as an artist you sort of want to respond to. So these pieces were basically demolished. Um, I smashed them up in the studio and then put them back together with uh, no nails, which is like a kind of gunky um, well it's the stuff in that show in the in, in colony in Legacies of Dissolution which is on the pink. It's like it's like um, DIY uh, macho glue, you know, it's really <laughs> it's really weird. It's it's interesting stuff and it, it 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 comes out like ice cream, you know, it's like Mr. Whippy. And you put stuff together, and then it, it goes really, really hard. So it turns it almost turns into ceramic or something, and you can get these really beautiful kind of forms that come from it. Um, but there was something to do with taking something that's given that has a kind of has a symbolic value, which is kind of what you're you're saying, right? And then how do you pull that away from? How do you reclaim it as a piece of artwork from something that's become like a, a corporate thing, or a, it's become life? It's, it's been taken away from its original um, intent. And for me, it was like, how do I pull it back, and how do I sort of turn it on its head? So I basically demolished them and then put them back together. And I really like the idea of it being somehow apologetic, or it's like when you really fuck something up and then you're. Yeah, you apologise and it's all sorted out but it's not and there's always something mm. that's damaged and it shows you know so it's a, it's a bit like if you have a row with somebody and you patch it up but there's still echoes on it or it, it's in there so um, yeah and I did it four times because you know it's a bit of minimalism right and you want a bit of <laughs> surreality <laughs> and sequence flippant. yeah I'm being flippant but I, I I think there's something about doing something over and over and over again that becomes a very interesting proposition. And 
how is this piece uh, related with the one you, that you show at Baltic, the bookshelves? Yeah, very related, I think, but... This, I, for me, this piece is well. It's obviously related because it, you know, it's the same kind of material. But the thing that was really interesting for me about being invited to do that show at Baltic, um, well, I, you know, I worked at Baltic from the moment, you know, the, a month before it opened as crew, as a sort of young artist living in Newcastle. And uh, when uh, does everybody know Baltic? It's a big, it's a big centre for contemporary art in the northeast of England in Gateshead. And it was really kind of when it was um, in its pre-opening <coughs> stages. Uh, the director Suna Nordgren, yeah. who's um, a Swedish, I think he's God, I hope he's Swedish. <laughs> if he hears this ever, um, apologies if not. But uh, he'd he'd set up Malmo in in uh, Sweden, and you know various institutions. He he came over to Gateshead with a real kind of strong ideological standpoint about what he wanted Baltic to be. It was kind of right from the beginning they'd gone and tracked down a font that they use all their use for all their publicity. That, that's a kind of very it's slightly imperfect, mm. kind of very um, I don't know, very sort of physical font that he'd found in a uh, typesetters in Sweden somewhere and the whole ethos for Baltic was that it was an art factory and you were going to be there and producing art and it was a very very it had a very sort of strong ideology to it um, and one that many people bought into and really believed in and working there as a kind of young uh, crew member and really wanting to get involved I thought it was just Fantastic, and it was actually for about, you know, for a short time it really worked and it was really going. And then the, the place started to to fall apart. I mean, there were you know political pressures on it, money was getting spent. Um, there were lots of uh, you know kind of strange political things happening in the office upstairs. Um, people falling out, power being kind of sought and and fought over. And I just, a fascinating thing to see and to work in, you know, how institutions, very quickly you can see that the path of an institution as it grew from its initial enthusiasm and, and um, correctness, you know, it had a very correct view on, on, on what it, on art and, and how it, you know, how it wanted to be. And then it just fell apart. I mean, really, it was unbelievable, you know, that sooner left, the next director came and made an effort to kind of contact local arts organisations and was very good at that actually. And then, you know, something happened, he had to leave and uh, it, it was just ridiculous. So I was really interested in that and asked to do this show. And, and basically, when Suna Nordgren had, had started fitting out the building, he 
um, commissioned a very top, uh, well, a, a top Swedish designer. Uh, I think it's Akka Axmanson or something. I don't know. I don't know the name. I'm not familiar with that kind of stuff. But he commissioned him to make all the office furniture and all the all the furniture throughout Baltic. A huge amount of money was spent on it. I mean, it was really bespoke designed stuff. And it looks exactly like IKEA furniture, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. Um, so I managed to get, and I think that by the third director, um, you know, he basically wanted to wipe the slate clean. So he he was chucking all this stuff out and wanted to get rid of it. So I managed to get hold of it. I think they were selling it off, at, you know, knockoff price. And uh, for me, it was it, it was really symbolic of of that era of that kind of moment of enthusiasm really for from a from a person i think that's a really again it's an interesting thing when when people kind of you can see when people have that kind of look in their eye you know you can see it in the young tony blair or the you know <laughs> you can you can see the the projection from where they are into the future and then it, maybe things collapse or they don't work out or whatever and I think that's a really it's a, it's a fascinating place so it's the same it's the same process basically but this is a really large piece um, and it's installed as an architectural thing so these modules were part of the former uh furniture of the museum or yeah it's the office furniture of the, the it's basically these these are bookshelves right from the office of Baltic um, so they keep all their files in there everything and the whole of Baltic was done in this kind of um, it's like a kind of joined pine thing with it but it's basically IKEA furniture but very very expensive IKEA furniture and uh, I, it's just it's crazy, really, but it's it it's a picture of a moment, really. So this is it, demolished and put back together, and then installed as an architectural device. So it's a wall, and the other thing that I I'm quite interested in is the idea of a wall being a kind of psychological um, barrier and something that you have to kind of go through or move around, and you know there's something very constricting and controlling about that inwardly as well, you know, the, the inner landscape, you have these these things in our, in our, in our makeup. And I, I once more cannot help but think about this issue about this former regime or whatever, yeah. the former director and the monument of destruction <laughs> to that former yeah. through the object. And, uh, this series of um, modules, you took them to your studio and destroyed them, or was something that happened? And yeah, Baltic delivered them in a, in a van, um, and then I kind of took them into my studio. My studio is in, a, in an old abattoir. It's in the, in the old city abattoir in Scotswood in Newcastle, um, which is, a, I think, quite an interesting place for, a, <coughs> for an artist to be, because it's, it's basically it's quite grim modernist, brutalist building um, and my studio is one of the, the old holding pens for the cattle which is really, I mean I don't think about it too much but it's a pretty eerie place 
fortunately good to put put to good use now, um, I hope. Um, but it's kind of interesting how it, I don't know, there's something about that place where you kind of want to slaughter things in a way. It's a bit horrible. <laughs> so this is my, this was my victim. And it was also, um, in a way, it was a, maybe a bit of revenge. I remember that part of the, the regime uh, for crew at Baltic was that, you know, because it was a, this big minimalist kind of thing going on with Sina, um, God bless him, um, but he didn't want any seats in the gallery spaces because they were, you know, unsightly, so you had to stand up all the time, which of course is great, you know, these young people standing there ready to talk to you and, you know, what a wonderful place to come and visit and people look like they're, they're keen, but of course after about you know, six or seven hours on your on your seventh day of the week, or your tenth day, because we used to work in shifts, you'd just be absolutely, your feet would be killing, and you'd be really pissed off, and you didn't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of, you know, this this optimistic ideal collapsed on itself immediately, because you had these, you, you know... Great people working there, a whole bunch of really young, enthusiastic people who are all doing really good stuff now. We're just really frustrated after a, you know a few months and really pissed off. And it, it's interesting how that spread through the building quite quickly. And I think there's something always keep the lowest the lowest people in the institution happy. I think that's what I took from that. You know, if you if any of you end up kind of directing big institutions, go and talk to the cleaners and become their friends, because that all, it, it, it's weird how it percolates through. Um, yeah. So maybe we can, now that we have started talking about institutions and dynamics in institutions, maybe we could take a look to the series of applications oh, okay. that you have that I think are quite good. These are on a different thing, so where's the, uh, how do I get the house here? Okay, I'll just show you this one. Okay, so this is a photographic piece. This is, um, This is a series of application, it's called the application series or something like that. And this piece is called Will Work Hard. Um, and it was basically, uh, I was doing a project at Hull Art Lab in Hull, which is a great place. If any of you want to go and do something for a month and meet some really great people and have a really good time, I would, I would get in touch with them and get over there soon because they're, they're fantastic. Um, basically, Hull Art Lab is a, it's a, it's a big empty warehouse. Um, in Hull, which is the strangest place and the most fascinating place I think I've been to. Um, and I was their first artist, artist in residence, unfortunately for them. So um, I had basically been asked to do a month residency there and I went with ideas of producing a piece of architecture because I'm, I'm really interested in architecture as well, and particularly sort of modernist architecture, people like Mies van der Rohe. Um, 
but they asked me for a written statement because they wanted a kind of you know something to give to the press and something that they could put on their educational stuff and on their website and you know in the handouts and I spent I really spent honestly spent a long time writing stuff and it just wasn't right and it you know I couldn't get what it just sounded awful it sounded like some kind of bit of blather that anybody would try and tell you about something to make it sound good so I just ended up saying um, Miles Thurlow in the top you know like the name and then we'll work hard was the was the kind of piece of text that I sent them and I, I printed it out on an A4 piece of paper and then took a photograph of it on my desk um, and then placed the photograph next to a photograph of a demolished previous work that I'd made, which was an architectural piece that I built, um, you know, finished, exhibited, and then destroyed. Um, so it's basically like the idea of a. Um, let me zoom in a little bit. everything that the piece was going to be and everything that they really expected of me it's almost like it didn't really matter what I did as long as I worked really hard and I think there's something about that about our society where we just expect that of people it, does, it kind of doesn't really matter what you do as long as you work hard and uh, for me that was really interesting like trying to trying to get right to the point of what our ex- what what our role is, what are ex- what are the expectations of us, um, and trying to kind of make a piece of work out of it, really. So this is I kind of see this as a separate as a as a piece of work in its own right. Um, yeah. And <laughs> so that was your statement. That was your actual application. Yeah, that was the that was like the beginning of the thing that I sent them, and, and, and it, okay, we're, we're going. And it worked. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was, it was, it was hard. <laughs> um, the next piece I did was the next piece like this I did was for the Durham residency, um, and for that I just uh, I wrote um, appropriation appro- what was it appropriate because in the in the application for the residency they asked you to write a few words about why you were appropriate for the residency, so it was. Or write a you know write a statement about why you're appropriate for the residency. So I basically just isolated the word appropriate and appropriated it. Um, and so there's kind of three things going on there. You know, there's the idea that this is appropriate um, as a thing, as a as a gesture for you. Um, the idea of appropriation, which is taking something and kind of making it yours. And then also the idea. Appropriate appropriation or appropriate is a, I think it's a, a Christian it's a it's a church term to do with devotion it's like a devotional act and I think that there was something really there's something about that that you know it kind of hits on all three things so, yeah <laughs> yeah in a way you are supposed to be appropriated by the institution that is allowing you to do the residence because whatever 
comes from that period is going to belong to them as you belong to them. So what, the artist becomes appropriated mm -hmm. by the institution? Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess so. So your work, your efforts belong to them. Yeah, and but yeah, I think it's an interesting play because you use the word as a seal. But in a way, the artist is also in a way sealed by whatever institution. Right. Okay. So you're, you're takes so them. So as a statement, you're you're. It's like you're signing a contract. Mm -hmm. And then your work becomes owned. Yeah. This was the piece that I made in Hull, um, which I worked very hard on, <laughs> which was it's basically a, a steel-framed piece of architecture, um, which has two it has one entrance around the kind of back side of it, the, the right-hand side, um, which you have to squeeze into. It's about the size of the width of my own body. It's called self-build, and you have to basically you have to kind of climb up, squeeze in, and then there's another corridor inside, which again is the width of my own body, and you have to kind of squeeze down the corridor, and then you're, you're, it opens up into a, a kind of large rectangular space, um, which is bright white. Um, it's just white, empty white room basically, with you know the kind of um, the light fittings that you get in bathrooms and kitchens now, kind of trendy design, mm. spot, yeah. recessed lights. So there's about eight of those in the ceiling, very bright. Um, and then you squeeze around another corridor and come into a, a, a channel, a corridor, which you can see from the outside here, which is um, the, the end of it, uh, which fits the width of my body this way. And you can kind of get in there. And then... At the other end of that corridor is, a, is, is glass, so it's a window. So this kind of square piece on the left-hand side is a is a big one big sheet of glass that covers the whole front of it. And when you stand inside it, because the space that this was in was very dark um, and it's very bright inside, you see your reflection. So it's like you're confronted with yourself at the end as a kind of spectre. Um, and the floor was bitumen, so it was, it was a really tarry, kind of stinking floor right throughout. So as, you, as people walked in and out, they kind of left their footprints there and it kind of got really sticky and, and nasty. And the outside of it's bitumen as well. I kind of, I really, I've got quite a bit of working with that. And, and people walk in and out? I mean, it was used... It was... was it was a period in which it was yeah, actually trans... So it's, it took about a month to build, and I was there. I was basically there on my own, building it because these guys were setting up the residency and doing everything, and didn't you know they they were really busy, so they, they couldn't help out too much. Um, and uh, yeah, it was like okay, it was very, <laughs> bruh, I'm going to build this thing, quite a heroic thing in a way. Um, and I built it out of steel, so I had to kind of, and I had, I'd never really done any welding before, so. Um, It's all done in um, like four, four inch by four inch box section steel, um, which I got from a, you know, the industry around. 
then cut up and welded and so you had to build like a skeletal structure and because they didn't have a ladder in Hull Art Lab so I had to kind of construct these like platforms to balance on with it it was like health and safety absolute nightmare um, so I was kind of stacking up stacks of chairs about ten chairs high with maybe four breeze blocks on it um, to, and then the welder and then I was standing on the welder with uh, arc welding with your black you know you have a kind of blackout visor trying to try not to electrocute myself on this, <laughs> this thing. I mean it was really stupid it really was quite stupid um, and so that took about a month and then the piece existed as a finished piece of architecture for a day and then I demolished it get a better idea of the internal space there so this is part of the process of demolition um, and that took place at about I don't know 12 o'clock at night through till 10 o'clock in the morning as a kind of secret act um, an unexpected thing and there were stages This I really like it at this stage because this is I don't know there were bits of it that felt like they were very intentional but it wasn't at all so this I, I'm quite into that there's a kind of square white panel bit on the right-hand mm. side, and I just really like the way that... You could almost imagine that as a piece, as an architectural statement in itself, and I, I think there's something really nice about it, but, it, you know, it's just part of smashing something up, really. It makes me sound like a kind of sadist psychopath <laughs> <laughs> artist, but, yeah, it, there's, there's something in, for me, the idea of... You know, working, building, constructing, and then flipping it over, and somehow that seals it. You know. Mm. Yeah, it's some kind of recurrence into vandalizing the object. Yeah. 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 Absolutely but an object that you really like, care about and that you've tried really hard on. It's not just like a wanton vandalism for the sake of it. No, and, and an object that is a result of your own work. Yeah. Okay. So there's a similar piece here, which was an earlier piece. Which was um, this was before the yeah this is a piece oh, this isn't in any order by the way so this piece was done as my MA show at Newcastle and were, were three rooms that I built um, out of plasterboard and paint and uh, strip lights and then I cast uh, concrete floors for them um, so which was really stupid actually I should have just skimmed them but I wanted a really high polished concrete floor like you get in an art gallery. Um, like a New York art gallery, not just any old gallery, like a really <laughs> slick kind of minimal space. So I didn't know quite how to do that. I didn't want to get... You can, sometimes you see those funny little helicopter machines that skim concrete floors and they bring them to a really high polish. And I kind of had fantasies about driving one of those around in the 
but <laughs> no. So I, I had to get some melamine-faced ply, which a melamine, like a real high-gloss melamine, kind of this this kind of stuff, which gives a glass-like finish. So I so I basically built the 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 space because the space had a little curb coming out. I had to sort of build it backwards and upside down, and and then cast concrete onto it, reinforce it. Um, until it was so thick and then flip the floors over so there was, it was quite an interesting point where there were um, four or five of us trying to lift a big concrete floor and flip it over in midair, um, and then build around it um, and it had to fit for some reason I was quite there's, there was quite an interest in this kind of modular structure so the the width of the plasterboard because I wanted the plasterboard to be kept kind of naked really as grey plasterboard because plasterboard has a really beautiful off grey green colour um, so the the build the internal dimensions had to be built to allow the plasterboard on the outside to fit precisely if you see what I mean so this, the whole building from the outside was exactly two plasterboard widths thick and then the inside was slightly smaller because of the, mm. the wood. So it was kind of built backwards. And then, so it was kind of built from the outside in. And again, with these very small chamber, well, eight foot cube chambers, where you had to squeeze in through a very tiny gap. And they had a really strong echo around them. So there were three buildings placed in the corners of the room. So you had to squeeze around a corner into the corner and then get in through the gap into the space. In a weird way, it's kind of interesting to see this show at the moment and and how the, the viewer is manipulated in you know in, in how they see things and experience work and I, I think there's something interesting about that control you know I mean I was thinking about this thing of vandalizing your own work yeah or overdoing your own work or at the same time that you overdo it you hide it in a way and I was thinking about the piece of Bad Boy oh okay yeah right yeah. <laughs> if only I was more practiced at windows it could be I'd be this talk would be going so much more fluidly. What's going on with that? Right. <laughs> yeah, defiled. <laughs> this again is an IKEA cabinet that I've um covered in bitumen repair mastic, basically. And then it's it kind of took on this really ominous presence in the studio and um It's got a, the, one of the drawers that you, you know they have those funny little drawers that you you can just put your hand around, and it started to have a kind of like mouth to it. And I like the idea of it being a little boy, you know, a bad boy, um, and that somehow it was kind of me, you know. It's like a bit of a self-portrait thing, but not because I'm very nice. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, you know, how doing something can start to mean something. If you do something enough over and over again, it starts to take on meaning, um, even though you're not really intending it. And it can, 
can start to take on something quite sinister because you're doing it over and over and over again forever and ever and ever. So kind of, in a way, you know, bitumen repair mastic a la shit substitute, you know, I mean, that's what it is, isn't it? It's kind of like shit smearing, right? So it's, you're, you're covering something and defiling it until it starts to take on a presence that then is other it's not mine anymore it's, it has its own Presence. character yeah 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 I find that piece quite kind of totemic yeah. I don't know if it's also because of the title that influenced bad boy but yeah, but yeah I, I, I think again of this issue of totology that in a way you go over over the same thing to some point in which it just gets hidden in a way. Yeah. And erased. Uh-huh. And results in some kind of absence or in some kind of presence that you cannot reckon or you cannot quite find. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, I and, and there is another series of objects that I find more poetic even if they have this similar what I think is a similar procedure of doing it it changes completely the way in which the presence of the object is perceived as the the blinds blinds? and the candle the candle? the the (laughs) Oh, the chandelier? Yeah. Okay. Mars, so, yeah. do you want to take a break? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, let's take a break, yeah. And then we can... Yeah, and then we can come back... Come back with some questions. Yeah. And maybe I can go through some more images very quickly so you get an idea of where I'm coming from yeah. because I get a feeling like I'm talking a lot at people going, what the hell are you on about? So if we have a 15-minute break... Great. Yeah? Okay. Thank you. And I'll let Carmen and Miles uh, begin now. <laughs> so I think are we gonna we should probably open this up yeah. a bit, shouldn't we? How, how does I feel a little bit like I've oh God, I mean I've heard it all so many times before from myself. So <laughs> um, if anybody's got any questions or wants to ask anything. Yes, hello. I'm just wondering about your emotional stage during all mm-hmm. this stuff. <laughs> uh, what, what were you wondering about it? <laughs> <laughs> is it? Are, you, are you being... Is it an emotional release when you're just... I don't... Can you swing a sledgehammer and just kind of be I, quite sort of cerebral about it? Or do you really feel some sort of... I think it goes on so, so long that you can't really maintain any sort of emotional... Um, sort of momentum for much more than 10 minutes really do you know what I mean <laughs> um, I tend not to use things like sledgehammers I usually just use my body out of more of a kind of interest in sculpture really um, as a as a kind of process because I kind of like the you know you basically you're creating you're, you're, it's like you're modelling or something um, I kind of think sledgehammers start feeling a little bit too heroic and I'm, I'm quite sensitive about that whole heroic thing because it definitely is a heroic or a heroic or dra- ma- macho act, 
and I'm, I'm very aware of that. So you're trying to underplay that? I'm kind of interested in that. I'm interested in that as a... as something that I'm quite aware of in growing up and, you know... Uh, feeling like you kind of, you know, as a, as a young man, you know, from a young boy to being a young man and, you know, into adulthood, you feel that you kind of... There's a pressure socially to, to start to, to know and learn about these things, right? So I'm, partly that's right why I... I mean, at the moment, I tend to just buy my materials from B&Q and IKEA, and there's something about going to B&Q. You're kind of, like, walking into a big conditioning thing. I mean, this is from through my eyes. You know, you walk into the tool corral and down the aisles where they have kind of, I don't know, various types of gunk that probably is just as good as anything else, but it's called stuff like serious... There's one called serious stuff, which is just great. And I, like, I really like the idea that you can use serious stuff as a material for your work. So you're kind of like in, infusing some serious stuff into it, which is, you know, it has a kind of, um, has another, <laughs> another meaning to it. Um, but why would you want to call glue serious stuff? And it, it does, there, there's something about the male mind, the kind of DIY, and, and I'm, I don't mean this in terms of man, woman, I'm talking about the kind of, there's, there's something to do with gender going on, I think. Mm. Um, and a kind of, a gender stereotyping and a role thing. I don't know what it is exactly, but I'm quite interested in it. And I think it's quite difficult to talk about. I think maybe it's more intri- more straightforward to talk about um, things to do with feminism. I think it's more of a... It's, it, it's got a bigger social... It's got a bigger history in, in as, a, as theoretical, you know, heavyweight theoretical stuff. And people don't really talk about you know what I'm what I'm talking about, and I and I, so I, I'm not quite sure where I stand with it, and I'm quite I'm kind of aware of it, and I don't think that I should stop doing it because I think that it's tricky. Do you know what I mean? It's it's somewhere to explore. So to go and purposefully destroy something, yes, it is a very self-indulgent macho act on one hand, and yeah, I'm quite aware of that, um, and it's a kind of you know, it's a kind of cliched, expressionistic thing. You can imagine, I don't know, it's kind of like Paul McCarthy's The Painter. Have you seen, has everyone seen, it's the kind of piss, piss take of de Kooning in his studio with his tube, with giant tubes of paint as kind of phalluses, like, scrawling all over the canvas and piercing the canvas and basically sort of, you know, fucking the canvas. And it, there's something to do with that kind of romantic expressionist thing that is a little bit too much actually and I think for me the destruction side of it is a little bit too much and it's something that starts off with a kind of there's something romantic about it and something kind of there's a release involved and there's something heroic about it and then it just gets a little bit too much and that's where it starts to become a bit more interesting for me because it starts to reflect back on these roles that we occupy or I occupy or you know one occupies or can occupy or you know so yeah maybe that's is that an answer to your question um, yeah, I think so. I think, um, it's an 
an audience invited to sort of view no. the station? No. Not the process, but the result. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I, I kind of like... Um, again, that's it's cha- it changes through different... Well, I think the, the first piece I did... Oh, God. Okay, here we go. This was the first piece I... No, it was the second piece I did with it. But it was the first piece where I really was kind of... This was a, a thing that had been interrupted and then and then allowed to be seen again. Um, it became quite picturesque in a way. It's like a folly um, after the you know after the fall or whatever. Um, this is called no room. This piece is called no room for failure. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not very good at titles. I did say it warned earlier, but it's it's a it's a room, um, and it's not a room, so it's no room, and it's for failure, so it's failed, and it, it you know yeah blah blah, but it's um that's the kind of logic behind it. I kind of want I wanted to build a perfect space that was, um, but I built it out of uh, I built it from B and Q. Um, I, I had a it was a, a 16 foot by 8 foot room in a demol- in a really grotty basement in Newcastle this was part of a project that was um, uh, part of Vane who were uh, uh, an artist led or were, I think they've changed a bit now but were an artist led sort of group at that time um, producing exhibitions in, in Newcastle and were one of the, the kind of founders of what's going on up there now actually um, so it was a great opportunity to do something to exhibit and um, so one of the spaces they had was this really rotten, dank, horrible basement underneath um, uh, a bonded warehouse and for me it was like creating a space that was pristine um, white walls, cherry wood laminate floor which is kind of nice I think, cherry wood laminate um, and uh, the, again these like halogen spots which were all the rage at that time and at, at that moment in Newcastle there was a you know redevelopment was really kicking off and this was like five what is it four four years ago where city living loft living it was like you know we're about to win the capital of culture and loft living Manhattan style so what they were doing is they were getting hold of these beautiful Georgian town plan buildings in Newcastle gutting them so place, places like this really although this isn't I don't know if this probably isn't children gutting <laughs> it, <laughs> exposing my, my poor knowledge of uh, architectural style and all that gutting it completely then rebuilding it in plasterboard right but with say two apartments in this room but with a real touch of minimalism, minimalism. so they'd have like um, plasterboard walls you could probably hear your neighbours getting up to whatever but they'd have Conran design taps and a Conran Terence Conran carpet and it and people were t- queuing like there were queues for these tiny little rabbit hole apartments that were like they were it was just this weird the weirdest thing that, that this fetish fetishization of like a minimal look and how you can sell something through that. And when people really want that because they want to adopt that lifestyle um, or kind of pretend that they live it. Or so I don't know what was going on there, but it, it was really fascinating that you had these beautiful buildings and then they were being given this treatment. Um, so this was... I, I don't have a photo of it as a kind of complete pre 
demolition stage but it was a very bright white space again you had to go in through a very narrow opening you had to kind of walk through a puddle before you got to it uh, but it was great at the opening because there was just everybody went in and stayed there and kind of drank their beer and looked cool and trendy in there and chatted and it felt like a really and you kind of got used to it and then at the end of the opening you sort of walked out into this really horrible space and it was just a it was re- i think there's something about a loft style space in a basement you know it's very obvious kind of um taking one thing and putting it into a different context but there was something about the immediacy immediacy of it that i was very interested in um and how it kind of related to a wider political thing that was going on at the time um and then to demolish it is kind of to i guess to move what was going on in the city at that time on a step because i don't know regeneration is a great thing of course but it doesn't solve the underlying problems that are there it, it, well depending on how it's done yeah <laughs> do you document the demolition yeah i do yeah I thought you showed one earlier that was, which is interesting she's saying yeah. that you deliberately don't have an audience yeah. for it. So is there an audience for those photographs? For that piece, actually, I had a friend of mine who was... I'd, norm, this is an unusual thing. I, I don't normally do this. But I, this was... Because Hull was such a strange place. This was the whole thing. And I was living in a flat um, that were, Hull Art Lab were renting off Hull Time-Based Arts that was in above a pub called, I think it was The Black Boy. Um, and it was called The Black Boy because it was an ex-slavery pub. And they were, of course, saying oh, it was all to do with the emancipation of slavery. And uh, actually it wasn't. It was they betrading slaves in there. Um, so it, anyway, digressing a little bit. But it was a very interesting situation. and The, the landlord would have lock-ins till like three in the morning, four in the morning, every, every night. So um, I don't drink now, but I did then. <laughs> and I was, I was just like, my God, I've got to get out of this, this town because it's driving me mad. But anyway, I became very close friends with another artist who is um, an artist called Charlie Nijensen, who's a video artist from Argentina. He's an amazing artist and a, and a very good friend. And um, we, this, we just clicked. And he was like, I want to be there when you smash this thing up. And um, he, he filmed part of it and he took a series of photographs during it, um, but very unobtrusively. And it was kind of like it was okay because I really bonded with him and he totally knew where I, I It was like it wasn't, it was like not having anyone there. Um, but I, the reason I don't want anyone to watch is because it feels like it's a performance and I think I have real issues about performance um, because of the notion of performing it kind of assumes a position and it, it, it assumes it creates a dynamic between the viewer and the performer which I'm unsure about uh, personally, I'm not no disrespect to any performance artist. So it's nothing. That's not what the, you know. I don't have a problem with performance, um, but I have a problem with myself performing and what that might mean. And I think that this is more to do with an act. It's more like an act than a performance. If if you can see the see the difference. Yeah, I was kind of wondering whether it's a little bit to do with what you were saying about 
leaving things out as well, um, which could risk kind of heading a bit down your heroic romantic route a bit. These things magically appear different the next day. Yeah, yeah. Like Ab- pixies have been in. Absolutely. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but it's interesting. I was just, yeah, I was just very curious what, about what I whether tend the documentation was ever seen or published. Because this is a published thing that we're looking at, isn't it? No, this is the portfolio that um, we've, we've basically, uh, the gallery that I run. Um, it's kind of interesting situation being an artist and running a gallery. Um, we have rules, uh, i.e., because we are an artist-run thing. We are artists that run this thing, and it's important that we're artists and we don't become dealers or gallerists or curators completely. Um, we include ourselves in the list of artists that we represent, right? Um, but we don't show ourselves in our space, and we don't show ourselves. Uh, in commercial uh, situations like art fairs because we, we started doing a lot of art fairs because the art world seems to have changed recently into art fair world <laughs> which is kind of, it's quite, I don't think it'll last that long but at the moment it's an interesting thing um, so it's important for us to be in there and so part of what we do for all the artists is produce a portfolio on them um, these are the portfolios that we have um, just available in the gallery or we can email to people or whatever. Um, mine doesn't really get about that much, so don't worry. <laughs> I kind of feel like it's, it's odd when you have... It's an odd situation, and you'll understand, I think. Every, every, anybody who is an artist and who runs a space, there's an odd line. Um, and some people, it's really key that they work, uh, and their work is part of... You know the gallery or the or whatever, and I think that it, it's it's how you negotiate that territory. It's very it's it's interesting. It brings up lots of interesting agendas. But anyway, so this is the port, one of the portfolios. So that's why it's got uh, that's why it looks published. Um, but on that point, what I do do is I take a whole series of photographs right the way through, and they're very snapshot, incidental photos. And then um, what I've started doing is making films out of those photographs. So this piece now exists as a two-minute film of, like, 400 shots fired past it. So is that the whole process? The whole thing from start to finish in two minutes. But, like, you know, like 30... I don't know, what it, what is it, 32 frames per second or something. So it's like you're taking time, or I'm taking... I keep saying you because I'm, like, uncomfortable about saying it, but it's, it's taking something that took a huge amount of time and putting it into a very short thing and uh, and it's and it's not looped um, and why, that's why have you chosen to do it like that I mean, I'm quite interested in this idea about what hard work is yeah. you know, especially in relation to kind of a practice that's essentially sculptural yeah. you know, where hard work is generally something that you then produce an object that everyone gets to look at and go you know, uh, traditionally go man I can see the skill yeah, in that, yeah. that carving or whatever no, I'm quite why then you don't just leave it that the, the thing that the artifact is the end result at the point when when it's kind of not it's not that I suppose it's the it's the thing where it's become collapsed where it's whether it, you know the, the kind of the value of the work has been negated almost I suppose it's what happens at the end yeah. of the process isn't it so what why decide to show the whole because I think it's a different piece of work 
I think what happens is it, it shifts into some into raw material again, right? And it, it's like I, it's not, it's not really that work. It's like another work from that thing, if you see what I mean. And that is, it's like a recycle. It's not recycle because that's just there. That's a you know very worthy thing to do, um, and that's not what it's about. But it's it's the way something can become what you were just talking about and then disappear and that that might mean something and then that itself becomes a base material for something else it's kind I, I it know, makes I perfect sense to me about value and mm-hmm. what's worth doing almost I, and I, I was just I don't know if it makes sense really but when I was when you were kind of talking I was thinking also about kind of workplace and what workplace does and how workplace is set up yeah in that it's not, you know, that it has this kind of, it's always had this kind of commercial mm, mm. side to it, which is about giving value, which is about kind of, you know... Validation. It's a hard work, fundamentally. Yeah. You know, or, or to these kind of practices that, that maybe didn't, you know, because of the geographical location, yeah. necessarily, that, that hard work wasn't necessarily kind of noticed. I think good. I like to think of it as good work. No, no, no. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think but, because but I think hard work talks about something else. I think hard work talks about the the kind of pressure to fulfil an expectation that society puts upon you Mm -hmm. and it's a worthy and good thing to do but it's interesting how and I see it in myself you know I'm really busy I'm so busy at the moment you know I'm just so busy and it's like how many people do I tell I'm so busy and why you know, it's almost like that becomes the important thing. And what the hell is that about? Because do you ever go... I mean, I've, I very rarely go around and go, I'm, well, I'm really not busy at all, and I'm not really doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everything, nothing much going on at the moment. Because, and somehow you feel... that You'd feel guilty, right? I'd start to feel... I don't. I think that I feel the weight of a social expectation to be doing, and you know, it's a work ethic thing, and I don't fully buy into that work ethic thing. But I'm quite aware of how I'm just pulled into it. So that for me is something that's an interesting arena. Um, yeah. <laughs> Does that answer your question, or, or does it? Kind of, it doesn't really, does it? <laughs> but no, no, it's not a question-answer thing anymore, is it? Do you, do you spend any other time in your studio? Well, I'm so busy that I don't know. You know, just in the sense that the studio space has become this sort of formative space, which is like a secret, unshown destruction space. And it's almost like sort of turning on its head, this space where an artist would incubate in many ways. Yeah. In the past. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I have a studio and I, I rarely get to the studio. Yeah, I think that's quite normal, actually. You know, and, and it's, but there's a sense that an artist needs a studio because of
perhaps with a notion of craft. Or Thou shalt go to the studio. <laughs> That's and the. It's a notion. It's like a mental space more than anything, and I think that alignment that you have with a mental emotion type thing. You know, I'm going there to like. I mean, I have a, a very strong mental emotion with with my work. Mm-hmm. I, I go to work and I like yeah. money to to fund other things. Yeah. I don't necessarily have that sort of strong social construct with, with the studio space as yet. It's funny, I, I used to go to the studio a lot. I had a period of time where I was, um, I'd left Baltic and uh, uh, it was like, I just need to be in the, you know, I need to be working in, in the stu- I need to be in the studio. I wouldn't say I was working in the studio because most of the time in the studio I sort of sat there going, what the hell am I going to do? Um, what what am I doing? What's my, why am I here? Um, and uh, it, it was my, my partner um, who's been fantastically supportive was very supporting of me at that time financially and you know and you know emotionally and all that kind of stuff so I had some time um, and then I started getting busy <laughs> and doing workplace workplace started um, happening a lot more and I'm working I'm lecturing now as well at Sunderland University in, in the sculpture department so the time in the studio has completely changed and I hardly get any time in the studio now and I find it a constant source of anxiety that I'm not in there doing my work. But then when I go there, I'm like, hang on a minute, what am I doing here? So it's a really odd thing. It's like that anxiety is always going to be there. Yeah. Even if when you're in the studio, you've got anxiety about not doing yeah. stuff. And when you're out of the studio, you're like anxious about not being in the yeah. studio. Yeah, neurotic artists, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think that's part of... I, when I, I, yeah, I trained... I trained, I studied, well, I trained as a sculptor, you know, I studied sculpture on a sculpture course, on a BA in sculpture, um, in, a, in, in Loughborough, actually, which isn't far from here, uh, which at the time was very much, I mean, it was, it was great, actually, because you learn a, a huge amount of stuff, you know, um, in terms of how to do things and how to use things. But it was... It was also a kind of journey up to modernism from the figure to modernism. And with that came a lot of that kind of thinking, I think, and that kind of approach, which is very much to do with what you're talking about. It's like work graft in the studio. And uh, um, and that's, that's why I wanted to do an MA, because it's turning that on, it turns it on its head and you have to suddenly reflect upon that and unpick it and and uh, pull it apart and, and realise that that's not really what art's about um, it's not really about affirming a kind of ethical kind of position on the world, it's more about raising questions I think uh, personally but uh, yeah <laughs> Can I ask uh, how you feel when you destroy the piece? Didn't we? We had that question already. Oh, did we have that <laughs> <laughs> it's probably very similar to yeah. In summary, <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. Um, initially, initially enthusiastic. In, uh, not enthusiastic. Yeah, maybe a bit of you know initial oomph, and then quite exhausted after a while, and then you just have to keep on because you've started something really that you can't 
stop. Do you ever not want to destroy it because it's taking you ages and it was hard work? Yeah. But that's the point which you really should... Good. That's, that's <laughs> the point, you know, I was sort of talking earlier about becoming a bit suspicious. Yeah. Because I think it's like when you get to those points of achievement, there's something in me that starts to be a little bit suspicious about that. Is it like a guilt? No. No, no it's like... Um, not at all. It's, it's like, what is it that's been achieved here? Is it in a you know? Is something very beautiful or aesthetically pleasing? So why do you want to reclaim double judge from Ikea? <laughs> <laughs> because I think that because Ikea's claimed Donald Judd, right? And I think that I like Donald. I, I like minimalism. You know, I, I find it um, chimes with me a little bit. Um, and I kind of don't like the way it's become a commodity thing, even though it kind of was in the first place. But it's become a mass. It's become a, an affectation of design. It, and it's great. Yeah, is that not a really, you know, is that not a really romantic thing? To, you know, if you're interested in the kind of destruction of these these points when you kind of achieve something or something, where, you know, is that is that not a good, a kind of good thing? Yeah, I think it is. It's not. It's subsumed back into. I don't think it's like I'm trying to sort of achieve something that sorts everything out. It's like in the process of the to and fro and the pulling and pushing, something gets um, discussed. And there's something about that dynamic which brings elements out that are kind of in there that you might that I wouldn't have it's not about anybody else getting it it's about that I start to see it more um, yeah it, it, it's like it within that convoluted dynamic or process or whatever it is something gets um, realised that, that sounds really romantic but I mean it, it, it gets seen or gets gets boiled down or whatever but something gets talked about in a way um, does that make sense to uh, anyone? To what extent is your work informed by the writings of Judd? Um, probably very much but I haven't really read very much right. <laughs> no um, I, Is it informed by? I think it's informed by minimalism yeah um, I, I Is used it to, informed just by the look of it? Or is it are you, do you see something I think a bit of both actually to be honest I think a bit of both because there's Smithson was kind of his his writings are very interesting I thought to do with entropy and that's there's a lot of entropy going on I think (laughs) Um, but yeah the look of things yeah I mean that's a a guilty admission in a way but on the surface level the look of minimalism is there's something very pleasing about it but I think that what what's interesting is that very you know it's very seductive but what is underneath all of that is quite a complex deep philosophical (laughs) theoretical thing that yeah, rejects and, and that. I th- I think that it's 
I think that it, it fluctuates between both of those. Do you see yourself as a leader? No. No, not at all. I'm, I think it's just, it's almost like a kind of, what do I see myself as, God? I don't know. Somebody who's looking at things and trying to understand them through doing something really and then seeing what happens and what does that mean and you know I, I think that's more it sounds very shallow but it that's more like what what that's what it is for me and how um, how different ways of doing things and presenting things and not you know, and and telling people things and not telling people things, how that kind of comes into it as well. I think that's quite interesting. We we were talking a bit earlier about, you know, what kind of labels do you put on the, if if that like that, the the wall piece that in Baltic, was on the wall untitled, so there's none of that information available about why, about the history or anything, to do with it. But the materials, in the materials was. It was Baltic bespoke designer office equipment, you know, office um, units. So it somehow discloses some of the information about where it came from. And I think that I find that quite interesting too, I think. So is there something about kind of understanding things? I mean, I think, I mean, I, as someone who this week read Robert Morris's notes on sculpture, they're, they're called Having Never Read Before, but they Yeah, there's a lot of that, isn't there? <laughs> Yeah, I think there's something really quite interesting about having an idea of what minimalism is, yeah. but not actually really understanding what, because it's a kind of becomes a historical event that you don't really necessarily, unless you've gone and read the books and done that kind of good book learning and academics. Yeah. You don't necessarily know what, I probably shouldn't say this. No, I think that's really... T- <laughs> you don't necessarily know, I just realised it being a podcast. <laughs> this is uh, Ruth yeah, Claxton. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, you don't you know, which is the interesting thing in a way about IKEA, isn't it? That it that it steals from that kind of aesthetic, and so it is purely a kind of visual. It's the look of, rather than it being any kind of real understanding of what that thing is. Which I suppose, you know, in a way, if you're ending up with this kind of destroyed form is kind of what you get maybe with some of your work that you get this thing that isn't that kind of guess it says something about this process or this kind of act that you've been through of events that you've been through but it doesn't it yeah kind of, you know, inevitably because it kind of it sort of always fails on that level of being able to really understand what yeah I think that's that's quite true I mean you know I don't fully understand minimalism I mean it's a and I you know god I can't it's very interesting and I have read a bit but I've not read everything and what books have I read you know which ones who buy and uh, you know and then you read all this you, you know reading stuff a bit by because he you know Judd's quite tough actually and I read Hal Foster though Return of the Real that was my MA <laughs> God, it that was that was that was a really that actually I would recommend to really wade through because it was um, that was a real big thing for me actually so that's there you go big tick Hal Foster but I think I think you're absolutely right it's like you have a kind of we're kind of informed on a certain level about things and 
partly it's subsumed into culture and partly it's kind of, you know, how many people have really read Karl Marx? Probably not very many. How many people have read books about Karl Marx? Probably a few more. You know, it's a bit like that, isn't it? And I think that... So you get this kind of second-hand, partially digested cultural stuff and then you're there trying to work it all out through doing things. Um, if I really wanted to understand it fully, I should probably write a very long dissertation or read all the books, but I, you know... I think that's a good point. You said that you have to work things out through doing things. I think that's what artists are doing in your practice. You find out... You have to get stuck in and find out about actually doing Think, uh, I mean, I've read a little bit about you know, minimalist sort of theoretical side of it, and it seems to me that it's sort of reached its logical outcome. Yeah, it got to a point of, of it's like the, um, Foster, yeah, how Foster talks about it is like the crux of mid- minimalism. You know, it, it kind of got somewhere, and then it had <coughs> it has to collapse actually, and um, because you can't how you can't go any further is that right I mean you probably know more (laughs) 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 but there's I don't know it's it's a difficult one because artists always want to feel like they have a very sound theoretical understanding and you know um, actually I kind of think well I'm much more interested in what's here in the world in front of us and why and, and how we can talk about it through how I can talk about it through doing something. It's much much more immediate. Um, but yeah, I read books as well. <laughs> um, Any last questions? Or is that a good note to finish on, perhaps? Um, if you don't represent yourselves in your gallery, but you produce documents like this, if someone was interested, say, in an art fair in your work, would you, would you send us them on the basis of... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we do represent ourselves, but what we don't do is um we don't we don't put ourselves at the front of the queue. Um we do I wouldn't say we don't publicize ourselves. That's not true. Um we're in there. But what I don't, you know, if I really want to do well commercially as an artist I should move to London right and uh, that's been a big pull you know move to London get a gallery not worry about it be represented let them get on with the work I think that if you don't move to London then you need to take control of the situation because if somebody's doing it and they don't know what they're doing then you're stuck with maybe one or two galleries that don't because it's a really tough world out there I think that sounds so awful but it's really it feels it, everything you do is it, you know it's just crazy um, and I think more it's become it, it's become easier now to kind of step back a bit actually because right at the beginning of, of doing workplace there was always like, oh well, what about us you know we're doing all this work and we're doing stuff but we're selling loads of that artist and that artist and that artist and I'm not and actually oh god it doesn't really matter you know because 
what there's a big big learning curve and I've, I've felt in the last year it's just like unbelievable you, it's like you're as an artist rather than having artist at the bottom dealer here collector here uh, no sorry curator here collector at the top and that's kind of the structure of the art world in terms of power and artists are down here you're kind of sidestepping that a bit and putting the artist in you know, as an artist I'm like me collector even though it's not me that's being collected it's a, an exposure to the mechanics of the art world in a way that wouldn't normally occur for artists I don't think um, maybe that's not true I mean there's, the, there's so many artists that how can I say that but th- there's a definitely a pressure to conform to a kind of hierarchy um, and dealers and curators have an awful lot of power um, because they can decide to show someone or not they can show the work to a collector or not they can drop the artist the, the artist becomes you know so for me I think there's something interesting about being an artist in that situation and not making it my art because it isn't my art you know doing running a gallery isn't really a you know it's a creative thing and I don't like to I think there's a lot of pressure to decide people keep saying and collectors keep saying hey you guys are really interesting Um, American accent you guys are really interesting um yeah we knew some really good artists run stuff in New York you know they eventually they made the choice they either wanted to be the dealer or the artist and this guy went with and yeah yeah but sometime you're going to have to make the choice yeah these guys aren't very interesting anymore and it's like well if they're not very interesting anymore is that because they made a choice and actually for me it's much more interesting not to make that choice and to just be continuing to work in many different forms and ways and and you know what's wrong with that <laughs> it's great <laughs> and it's it's exciting and interesting and and i think i've learned far more about being an artist about being an artist not about making art um in the last Is year why that you spend such so many of your time with different hats on that you the bit the making the art bit becomes pushed you know becomes yeah, it is. It is a problem, but it becomes kind of constrained. Yeah, potentially. I mean, I just yeah. whether yes, it is a problem. Not being interesting thing isn't because they made a choice to come to or yeah. because they, you know. But I was thinking. Because it depends on what you know. Because actually, sometimes practice is a full time. Yeah, and I was feeling this. I've been feeling this anxiety a lot in the last year, and then actually looking at the last year, and God, I've probably been more productive than the last five years in this last year weirdly although I kind of don't it's strange it's like you feel like you're not working as much but it's probably that you're working less but harder but harder (laughs) 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 you know what I mean it's it's more intensive Um, yeah but it is it does cause strain and stress and worry and uh, um, anxiety and then teaching as well bloody hell that's kind of an odd one um, because you're giving out all the time, and um, but you do get back as well, which is kind of nice when you see people kind of getting something or doing something. But never mind. <laughs> okay, thanks very much. Thank you, Miles, and thank you, Carmen. Thank you. Thanks.